Good afternoon. It's Sterling Fox in for Jill on a soggy Monday afternoon. It is 12.07 and our first guest today is the British Columbia chapter president of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Always a pleasure to welcome Chris Sims to the airwaves of CKNW. Chris, hi. Hi, thanks for having me on. Ah, uh, good to have you with us. And you and I are about to pick up on a discussion that we began about three months ago, Chris, on these airwaves when the federal government first announced its aid packages, specifically the wage subsidy and, more importantly, the CERB. Today, the Prime Minister has announced the government will uh, extend the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, the CERB. They're working on details right now. Uh, they haven't got much more beyond that in terms of how many more months it will be available to people who need it uh, the, the discussion we had three months ago kim uh, was about the benefit packages and how quickly the government had come to their senses and decided to step up and start uh, forking over some money for people who were in desperate straits however the caveat at the time was how much of down the road how much of this is going to turn into being a disincentive for people now we're hearing and i used the story a few minutes ago with mike smith uh, anecdotally, you're starting to hear from employers, Chris, who are uh, getting back in business. They're opening up the shops, the stores, the restaurants, the whatever, and are starting to uh, get those staff members back in place and get ready to go. And uh, from some employers, we're hearing that some of their former employees have decided to frankly take the summer off and we'll, we'll catch up to you in a few months. Uh, that's the disincentive portion of CERB. What do you make of the announcement, first of all, today to extend it? Well, you make some very excellent points, and you're right. Uh, I think the key factor here is that was three months ago. And so while we really wanted the federal government to move quickly, because as we know, it was a pandemic, people were quite concerned uh, healthcare-wise, and we needed to make sure we did everything we can to keep people afloat, it was three months ago. Yep. Um, they can't just keep extending this forever. And to your point on, on possible costs, um, we don't need to really wait for the details to come from the Prime Minister in this case. We can take a look at the Parliamentary Budget Officer, who just last week was sounding the alarm, saying that if they keep kicking this can down the road and extend the CERB again, it could cost taxpayers around $60 billion mm -hmm. to be. Mm -hmm. It's already tabled the cost of that much as of now without this extension. So we could really double it. So this is what we're starting to say, you know, guys, um, we got to really start changing our focus to getting folks back to work, opening businesses back up safely and wean off of CERB. And I really wanted to highlight this. The CRA is cracking down on people who are deliberately defrauding the system. Right. Now, hopefully they're not going to go after somebody who makes an honest mistake because, you know, everything's confusing right now. But for those fraudsters who are gaming the system, they're going to come after you. And for everybody who's getting the serve, this is just a gentle reminder. That's taxable. So come tax time next year, you're going to have to pay income taxes on that. So make sure you bank some of it. So one of the big reasons the Prime Minister and his party are considering going forward with the CERB extension, Chris, uh, aside from the obvious benefit that it will provide to some very needy Canadians, mm -hmm. the other portion of that, however, is that they need an opposition party to vote alongside them on Wednesday when they enact not only the extension of the CERB, but other spending measures. And the NDP are the likely uh, partners in this exercise, but a 
condition of the deal for NDC, NDP support on Wednesday, Chris, is the extension of the CRB or the CERB rather up front. Uh, they have to commit to that and then they'll be backed up by the NDP to spend more money on Wednesday. This is a great point you're making here. And number one, it's why we should be having the full House of Commons in session right now, because we're dealing with billions of dollars. It shouldn't just be the uh, basically COVID committees. So that means that even though you're seeing the folks in the main House of Commons building right now in that room, mm-hmm. it's still just a, it's still just a COVID committee uh, formation of various types. It's not full House of Commons. They should be going full House of Commons, including virtual visits, because this is serious money. And now that we're into this, it's been over three months. Everybody hopefully has been playing nice during an emergency. We're trying to be very reasonable here. Sure. We can't start getting into party politics and pet projects. So we can't just um, always, always extend the serve. We, we just can't afford it. And so they really, we need to urge the government uh, very firmly. They need to shift their focus, get the economy going again so people can earn and make their own money. And so employers can start doing business again. That's the only solution here. We can't just endlessly get taxpayers to pay for it because we're going to run out of money. Well, there is that uh, reality as well. I mean, this is all borrowed money. It's very important to remember that none of this is, we're not exactly drawing down from the kitty here. This is all borrowed money. Uh, We're fortunate, Chris, that we're borrowing money in historically low interest time. So the hit to the taxpayer on the payback will be less than previous emergency situations. But uh, the other thing that's uh, starting to bother Canadians, aside from the absence of their elected representatives in a forum, which we know as Parliament, uh, is the fact that there isn't any kind of accountability uh, forthcoming from government. When uh, when William Lyon Mackenzie King was Prime Minister of Canada during World War II, he was never, ever going to be legendary as Mr. Accountability, ever. He was a tricky old guy. But nonetheless, mm-hmm. even in wartime, the government, his government, uh, provided the people of Canada with a financial update. Here's, this, here's what we're spending all these great gobs of money on, and here's why. So far during this emergency, the current government has yet to issue any kind of accounting for what they're up to at all. You make a great point there. And not only here in Canada, but of course, over uh, in the United Kingdom, uh, Prime Minister Churchill at the time was providing accounting and finances for the Second World War, which was, we don't need to explain, one of the greatest emergencies ever to hit humankind. Sure, They were able to do the accounting then. There's no reason why they can't do the accounting now, especially given our technology. There's a way of doing this remotely. Nobody needs to come within 10 feet of each other. So we need accountability here. And I want to stress the nonpartisan parliamentary budget officer put out this warning last week saying if you guys extend to serve, it could cost us an extra 60 billion. And to your point on borrowed money, there comes a time Let's hope it isn't soon where international money lenders will start looking at Canada and saying, oh, you're not even providing books to your own people on what you're spending. We're not going to lend you any more money. That could come. And we don't want to see that day. Well, we'd be in pretty dire straits if suddenly we were in that situation where we were basically cut off by some lenders and then another emergency. These are always, that's why they're called emergencies. You don't see them coming in many cases. You don't want to be in that predicament, do you? Exactly. And which is why we want to gently point out it's much better before these things happen to have spent your money wisely and to hopefully have a rainy day fund. Because that's what this is for. We weren't even near that situation before this hit. We were in a huge, unnecessary deficit before this hit. 
And now we're hearing, oh, we're just going to kick CERB down the road and keep extending it. And we're not going to tell you anything on the accounting, just pay the bills. This is no way to run a country. We have to get more accountability here. Taxpayer.com is an excellent website, Chris Sims, and you've got that open letter to all the party leaders that uh, taxpayers, all of us, should have a look at and see what boxes they're, they're going to check. Ha <laughs> uh, Great of you to join us today. We appreciate that. We'll talk again for sure. Thank you. Taxpayer.com is where you'll find all the good stuff from the Taxpayers Federation. That was Chris Sims. Pressure on scientists the world over to uh, hustle up a COVID-19 vaccine is, as you might imagine, enormous. So much pressure to the point where uh, there are concerns in the scientific community that the pressure is unrealistic and is possibly putting the integrity of scientists at risk. There's an author, uh, an article about this at theconversation.com, co-written by our next guest, Byron Bridal, who is an associate pro- professor of viral immuno- um, immunology at uh, the University of Guelph. Professor Bridal, Byron, welcome to the program, sir. Uh, thank you for having me. Hundreds and hundreds of vaccine tests are going on the world over. Uh, we have several here in Canada. We know of several going on in the United States. It's it's a pretty safe statement to make. But uh, the pressure, and, and of course, uh, the, it's coming largely from politicians who want this thing over and done with quickly. Uh, the, we're talking, even Anthony Fauci, who should know better, is talking about a vaccine in a matter of months. Maybe many months he qualifies it, but still talking in terms of months. Tip Typically, sir, what is the uh, development and uh, implementation time for any vaccine? Uh, yeah, so the, the current timelines uh, arguably are very unrealistic. I think most scientists would acknowledge that. But um, with the current pressures, unfortunately, many are not, or at least giving the impression that, the, that this can be done much faster than it normally would. So uh, once a vaccine is developed and has gone through the preclinical phase, and translational testing, uh, then it has to go through what we call the uh, clinical trials, several uh, sequential clinical trials. Usually there's three, so there would be a phase one, then a phase two, then a phase three clinical trial. Okay. And, and to, to uh, have a vaccine pass, like uh, start at the beginning of a phase one clinical trial and go through to the completion of a phase three clinical trial. So in other words, in order to span that whole clinical testing process, usually takes 10 to 15 years. Wow. Is there, and, is there and, a... and, again, and, and again, that doesn't include the development that goes into the vaccine, which usually takes uh, several years prior to that beginning. Uh, Professor, are there set rules with these phases, these various phases of clinical trials, regarding the number and the minimum number of humans upon which the trial is conducted? Uh, not necessarily uh, precise numbers. It's always negotiated with uh, the health regulatory agency, which would be Health Canada mm-hmm. in, uh, for Canadians and the Food and Drug Administration in the United States. Um, so w- once somebody has a vaccine ready for clinical testing, there's always uh, negotiations with the with these agencies and uh, they essentially are, are tasked with setting the rules uh, and defining these things like such as numbers of patients that would have to be or volunteers that would have to be tested and so on. Uh, Professor Bridal, based on your uh, research and your personal experience, uh, how long realistically should Canadians expect before we have in our hands available a vaccine for our population? Yeah, so, okay, so there's, that question can be answered in a couple ways. So there's, there's first, I guess the, the first way to answer that is, I guess, first of all, we don't necessarily need the best vaccine. We just need a vaccine that works. Okay. 
And, and so there's a difference in the timeline between uh, a vaccine is good enough and an excellent or perhaps the best type of vaccine, right? So uh, for a vaccine is good enough, it's possible that uh, I guess what we would hope for is that uh, we've learned enough from past lessons with uh, other coronaviruses like the MERS coronavirus and the original SARS coronavirus to have developed technologies that could be moved, uh, mobilized relatively rapidly. Uh, However, they all still have to traverse the entire clinical trial pipeline. And I can tell you there's just far too much paperwork and red tape to navigate to be able to reduce that to to 12 months. Um, I mean, when you think about it, it, it it's if we're cap- if we if we're in theory capable of reducing it to 12 months, why haven't we done that in the past? Right? right? Do, do do patients uh, dying from cancers not not matter as much? Do people dying from whatever you know uh, a given disease is um, when they want their uh, potentially promising experimental therapies um, getting into uh, you know getting through the clinical testing in, in a year? Um, so we've never done it in the past, despite the fact, arguably, there's many other diseases that are very relevant to human health. And um, it, it's simply trying to compress it too much. I think one, one great thing that is going to come out of this is there is an enormous amount of bureaucracy uh, associated with running human clinical trials. And there's no question that there's a lot of efficiencies that could be built into that system. Um, and I think that's going to be a great thing that's going to come from this is because everybody's willing to budge and uh, so much on, on some of the requirements that may not uh, affect safety mm-hmm. of vaccines that are developed. I think what's going to come out of this is we are going to have a much uh, more streamlined and faster clinical testing system in the future. And that's going to benefit everybody because it isn't just going to apply to vaccines against COVID-19. It's going to apply to vaccines against any infectious disease and any other therapeutics that are coming for other diseases like cancers, et cetera. Um, but arguably, those of us who, who are in the vaccine development uh, field uh, realistically know that that cannot be compressed to a year. That, that's that's expecting too much. And in terms of timeline, Byram, once we have that not necessarily perfect vaccine, as you identified earlier, but a workable vaccine, once we have that identified and cleared all three trial phases, what is the turnaround time for manufacturing said vaccine on a scale massive enough to vaccinate the Canadian population? (laughs) It's a great question. And arguably... Again, nobody can say with certainty because nobody has had to manufacture a vaccine on this scale uh, before in such a rapid uh, turnaround. So, but indeed, you're right. Once a vaccine, if if a vaccine were to to be approved for routine use in uh, in, uh, in Canadians and everybody around the world, then what has to do happen is there has to be um, careful. Uh, quality control testing, sure, right? Because a large batch, large batches of the vaccine then need to be made. And every time a new batch is made, that has to be rigorously tested to make sure it's safe, right? You always want to make sure there haven't been some kind of uh, unexpected contaminants that have got into the vaccine formulation. Mm-hmm. So there's careful testing, uh, then manufacturing, like you mentioned, at a huge scale and distribution. And none of these things are straightforward. And realistically, at the scale that's needed, um, that alone could uh, take you know, easily a year or more potentially. Um, and, and, and then the problem even goes beyond that, because even if all those things are in place, uh, we have to remember that um, the vaccine has to confer a certain amount of immunological memory, long-lasting immunological memory, or that's not going to be particularly helpful, because what happens is if you don't have, if the vaccine 
doesn't render somebody immune for a long period of time, as you can imagine. By the time you're done, if, if people who are vaccinated first could potentially become susceptible to a reinfection with the virus before other people are vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the other thing, of course, is, is the uptake of the vaccine. This is a concern. So if you don't have a really good quality vaccine, one of the problems is it's not going to induce immunity in all people, right? So, for example, some vaccines have uh, very poor efficacy. For example, our, the annual flu vaccine typically is only about 50% protective. Ah, right? so you need so a vaccine. you're suggesting, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Professor, because it's fascinating yeah. stuff, but I'm fresh out of time and really grateful for yours. Sure. It's a very necessary caveat to all Canadians that it's not going to happen soon. Patience is, is, is a virtue to be appreciated and is incredibly necessary during this process. Sterling Fox in for Jill Bennett on this very, very cool Monday. It's the 15th of June, for crying out loud. It's lunchtime, and it's only 13 degrees out. We had snow on the Okanagan Connector last night in the V.C. interior. Calgary got just pasted with a hailstorm and flash floods over the weekend. Not exactly a, a, a summer to write home about at all. And then, of course, this is all on top of a pandemic. Ah, well, we're Vancouverites. We're used to living on the edge of the rainforest, although... Oh, Lord knows a little sunshine would be very welcome. Linda Annis is a longtime Vancouver resident. She is a counselor on the CSE Surrey Council. She's going to introduce a motion today at their virtual council meeting to cancel city fees associated with creating restaurant patio spaces. Uh, Linda says it's all part of helping local restaurants in Surrey survive the economic impact of COVID-19. Councillor Annis joins us on the line right now. Linda, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Sterling. It's good to have you with us. Uh, As I uh, read the press release that our producer Ben Dooley shot to me a few hours ago, the first thing I did was go to surrey.ca, the municipality's website, and there's a whole page, there's a whole section there about add-ons and outdoor buildings and all the rest of it. So the fees you're talking about cancelling by my very rough, and I should never do it live on the radio math, could be in the area of about $1,200. Is that fairly close? Well, it could, it varies quite honestly, and I think you're on the low side. Um, and really what I want to do is get the restaurants open again, get them profitable. We need to get people back to work, and we need to cut the red tape at City Hall and just get on with it and make it easy for restaurants to get back in business. You must be encouraged by the fact that the city of Vancouver, a notoriously slow-moving municipal bureaucracy, has actually kind of picked up its uh, feet a little bit on this and accelerated the whole notion and the whole process of getting additional patio space for some restaurants in the city of Vancouver, many of which, as is the case in Surrey and everywhere else, Linda, are in pretty tough shape. They sure are. We have over 800 restaurants in Surrey, and we need to get them open, and we need to make it easy for the owners to be able to do this. We need to cut the red tape, and I was you know, quite optimistic at the last council meeting. We did pass this. Uh, it was difficult to see what fees were going to be charged, but the staff did give assurances that we could do it in three business days. Unfortunately, there is so much red tape and all these add-on fees, it's so difficult for a restaurant owner or a pub owner to navigate through this. Uh, We've had only one restaurant uh, uptake on this uh, so far. Interesting stuff. Now, you've also got the uh, BIA, the Business Improvement Association, included in your motion that you're going to deliver to the council meeting later in the day. Where does the BIA fit into the big picture as far as the elimination of fees for and streamlining patio approval? 
Now, the BIAs, that's a different uh, issue, and that has to do with the fees that they get from the city each year. Okay. And uh, what I was asking for in my second motion around the uh, BIAs was as we collect property taxes, as you know, which is a good thing for businesses and residents in Surrey, we've given them till September 30th to actually pay your property taxes this year. Right, yeah. And normally, you know, some people will pay them in advance. If, for an example, if you're on a monthly installment uh, plan or if you're paying them with your mortgages. So what I'm asking as far as the BIAs is concerned, if we collect uh, fees in July, uh, July the 2nd, which is the due date, whatever that percentage of the fees are that we collected, we pass along the assessments that would normally go to the BIAs at that time, that percentage, so that we can help them help our businesses in our community. Ah, just fast-tracking the loot to the BIA, who's on the ground every day doing really important, very practical work with members of the business community. Absolutely. Our BIAs are the backbone of our business community here in Surrey, and we need to be supporting them. We need to be working together uh, through this very, very difficult uh, financial time for our businesses to ensure that businesses um, are promoted, that uh, people are encouraged to shop locally in Surrey, and, of course, uh, to help our restaurants, uh, which is absolutely vital. 800 restaurants in Surrey and thousands and thousands of people that are employed in those restaurants. Absolutely. You know, Linda, the other part about this in terms of setting aside the fees is because a lot of those restaurants, those who will survive or who are still struggling to try to survive, have been forced to reach down deep into pockets that are already pretty empty to come up with fresh fresh cash for things like uh, plexiglass shielding, uh, new ways of, uh, of doing things in inside for spacing and all the rest of it, plus to say nothing of the new furniture, et cetera, required for these patios once they're installed or approved at least. So to top the fee on top of that is really asking a lot for some people with pretty desperate cash flow issues. Absolutely. And right now, restaurants can only operate at 50% capacity. And if you're a small restaurant owner, that doesn't make sense financially. So many of the restaurants are just staying closed. And that's not good for business. It's not good for employment. Uh, And we just need to get on with it and cut the red tape and cut the fees. Yeah, Linda, final question to you. I did a a chat with a bigwig from Deloitte over the weekend on the morning show here on NW. And this chap in Toronto told me that they have just done the State of the Consumer Survey, a national survey, a very extensive one, and basically taking the pulse of Canada to say nothing of our province, and we're very, very in line with the rest of the country. The anxiety factor is way up there, Linda. People are still extremely nervous about going going out and mixing it up and going out to dinner and all the rest of that stuff. And even though restaurants are now reopening, and as you say, trying desperately to hang in there at half capacity, hopefully a little extra patio space might make the difference for some. But it's really frustrating to watch literally an industry dying in front of your eyes and still be so anxious about yourself and and the the health of, of everyone else that you really aren't prepared to go and do anything about it yet. Well, absolutely. A lot of people are feeling that way. And I guess uh, one thing that the restaurants or many of them have done is offer takeout service. Yes, of course. Uh, And I would encourage people, you know, if they're not comfortable yet to go out and eat, let's support our restaurants. Let's support our local businesses. Takeout, uh, you know, it's fun to uh, go to your favorite restaurant uh, if you're not yet able to, you know, dine in. And 
bring it home and, you know, set it up and have a nice uh, family or romantic dinner. There you go. Uh, how about uh, tonight? Uh, is there a strong enough appetite around the council table, Lindy, do you think, to have these uh, patio expansion fees waived and the process of having the patio expansions in the first place fast-tracked? Do you think it's going to get done today? I sure hope so. It's for the best of the businesses in in Surrey, and that's who elected us, the people that own those businesses, and we need to do the right thing. All right, Linda Annis, uh, we wish you success at uh, tonight's virtual council meeting. We'll be following the results right here on CKNW later in the evening. Thank you. Thank you so much. Surrey Councillor Linda Annis. So what do you think? Is this is this the very least the bureaucrats can do? Uh, re, uh, they're still doing it in Vancouver. Now the uh, Surrey Council is at it. I assume that uh, Coquitlam and Mission and Abbotsford and White Rock and everybody else is going to be taking a look at similar motions to help the restaurant industry. As we noted uh, this, during this uh, State of the Consumer chat we had with Deloitte over the weekend, consumers in Canada are still extremely anxious. The, blood, the, the pulse rate is still a little faster than it should be, and it's all about COVID-19. So as we look around to try and improve the lot of those like us trying to survive this economically, nice to be with you this cool Monday afternoon, 13 degrees at 106. Sterling Fox in for Jill Bennett on CKNW. One week from today, a lot of hockey fans, well, literally all over the world, will be looking forward to the announcement from the NHL as to which of the two cities of 10 on the current list will have made the final cut and will be the hub or host cities to what is left of the NHL season. So our next guest is is a lecturer in economics at Montreal's Concordia University. A pleasure to welcome Moshe Lander to the program. He's going to take a look at economic impacts of the NHL and its hub city. What would happen, for example, if Vancouver gets the call to host half of the NHL for half of the season? Moshe, welcome and good afternoon. Good afternoon. It's good to have you with us. First of all, uh, because Vancouver, of course, has been lobbying shamelessly for this uh, this opportunity for several weeks. Just by way of comparison, uh, we know Toronto and Edmonton are the other cities up for consideration. Why isn't Montreal aggressively going after this? Montreal has an old arena by relative standards now. The Bell Centre is uh, over 20 years old now, and Montreal is unfortunately the hotspot for Canada of all of the the virus outbreaks. Right. So, uh, I, I think that the, the NHL just wanted no piece of that and so didn't name it. Uh, Edmonton got named, uh, despite not being one of the larger Canadian cities, uh, you know, in the big three, uh, because, of course, it has a, a brand spanking new arena. You bet, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they've got uh, hospitality amenities also motion connected directly to that new uh, Rogers Arena in, in Edmonton, the Rogers Centre. Uh, and uh, so all the teams could, uh, in theory at least, exist within literally a bubble in what they call the, the arena zone in downtown Edmonton. No one would have to leave, even the, the complex that the arena and all the accommodation is in. And it's all very self-contained, but they haven't. Now, Jason Kenney's made a few phone calls, but he hasn't been going after this as aggressively as big-time hockey fan John Horgan, uh, Premier of British Columbia. Uh, but they say, and this is where I'm curious about your take on this, they say Las Vegas is the leader, is the favorite 
of the 10 cities on the list to be one of the host cities. And if that's the case, Moshe, Vegas being in the West, would the league not automatically look for a second host city somewhere in the East? You are completely right. And I hate to burst your listeners' bubble here. No pun intended. It's not going to be Vancouver. It's uh-huh. going to be Vegas. Vegas, um, unfortunately for Vancouver, for any of us in Canada, um, has an even better set of the bubble that uh, that it exceeds even Edmonton. So uh, shameless uh, promotion or not, the fact is that you know you can take over uh, a half-empty casino, put each team on multiple floors with all of their associated trainers, medical facility. Uh, you can turn conference rooms into physiotherapy centers. Sure. You can even open up casino floors in a controlled sort of way so that the players have a, a social aspect. The restaurants that are in the casinos there, T-Mobile Arena is within a block of a, a lot of the major casinos on the Strip. That's so, right. You know, it, and the fact is that, of course, Vegas has a new arena, and it's a new hockey hotbed, so to speak. And, uh, you know, Vancouver fans, Edmonton fans will forgive the NHL if it doesn't choose it. Um, Vegas fans, you don't want to lose that momentum that was built from the, the outset when they, they went to the cup final in the first year. Interesting stuff. Now, you mentioned uh, Montreal sort of being eliminated by virtue of being Canada's COVID hotspot, which regrettably it continues to be. What about Nevada uh, in terms of uptick in, in numbers of cases? Could that, uh, in, even in the short term, we're still a week away from the announcement, Moshe, uh, could that uh, negatively affect Vegas's status? It could, but then you'd have to come up with a compelling story to to move away from there. So, you know, everyone's starting to see little bits of upticks here and there because, uh, you know, as the summer weather comes and everybody's kind of maybe getting a little lax in the way that they're they're self uh, promoting or self promoting, self protecting themselves. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I think we're going to see it everywhere, and I think what the NHL needs to do is see not where's the uptick today or even next week, but where's that uptick going to be in two months, three months. The last thing you want is a team being decimated uh, by having to pull its players because of a, an outbreak within the dressing room and really altering uh, the, the playoff format and, and kind of, you know, actually seeing a team almost like default yeah. uh, because they can't they can't properly put a team on the ice. Well, this, of course, is all about that dreaded second wave, which so many in the scientific community insist is still quite likely, uh, despite uh, assurances to the contrary from non-medical people in the American administration, uh, it's still entirely possible. And you're right. They could uh, get these two hub cities up and running, get the, the regular season finish uh, all set to go, and underway and then of course then you're uh, uh, if you have uh, an uptick in outbreaks in one of those two cities uh, it really could uh, especially as you get to the finals of the playoffs in the fall it, it really could upset the whole thing couldn't it yeah and, and you know i i've been a little skeptical that they're even going to get this thing off the ground to begin with i i appreciate the due diligence that they're going through and i appreciate them trying to stay relevant in the media cycle as they've been gone for three months now but, right you know, I, I just I can't envision, and and especially with Canada, um, still having effectively a closed border, uh, the idea that somehow you're not going to have two Canadian cities selected here, so you're probably going to go with two American cities so that you don't have to deal with border issues uh, between east and west. Um, but I still think that yeah, you know, if you if you end up with uh, a bad PR hit here, um, is is that worse than just 
saying, you know what, we tried, we gave it our best, mm-hmm. it's just not going to work. We'll, we'll see you all in October, and we'll try it properly then with a, a regular season. I think right now the owners just want that ability to make some money and recoup their season rather than, you know, really believe that this is the way to go. Yeah, and I think a lot of hockey fans are okay with that. <laughs> just get get those boys back on the ice. Give us some entertainment here. We'll take what we can under whatever, whatever limited circumstances they arrive. And, of course, nobody in the rink is going to be really weird. Just look at the golfers this weekend out there in Texas at the, uh, at the Charles Schwab Open. Good golf, great tournament, but absolutely nobody there. And the players all said... It was really weird, but it allowed us to focus on our game in ways that we hadn't been able to in public for a long time. So there's the pros and cons of that. Sterling Fox in for Jill on this Monday afternoon, joined from Montreal by Moshe Lander, who is a senior lecturer in economics at Concordia University. The subject, of course, is the announcement due one week from this afternoon from the NHL as to which of the two of ten remaining uh, attempting cities is going to actually make the cut and be a hub or host city for the remainder of the NHL season. Uh, You were going to tell us about economics because when Mr. Horgan, the premier of British Columbia, ever so enthusiastically, enthusiastically pitched our case to Gary Bettman and the NHL uh, and told us about his phone calls and letters and so on. He was most enthusiastic about the economic opportunities that this represented to the host city. What sort of economic opportunities are we talking about? It is. It, it can't be spectacular. Moshe, there are no fans. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of the big missing one. Uh, so I, I love how... Uh... Uh, you know, I, I, I'm an Alberta resident, and so I love how the premier of Alberta was, uh, you know, touting up that this is going to bring in uh, millions and millions of dollars for the Alberta economy. And I heard that, change too. Yep. Fortunes. Um, and, uh, yeah, you, you know, it, it's not. What you're going to bring in is activity from the players and the teams themselves. Sure. That's essentially the limitation that, you know, if you're going to bring in, say, 10 teams, say each one's bringing an entourage of uh, around, let's say, 100 people, give or take, um, so fine, you're talking about a thousand people. They're going to take over a local hotel, uh, and they're going to be there slowly phasing out anywhere between one and three months. So you're talking kind of at a maximum using kind of back of the envelope numbers. Maybe this is going to bring about 10 million, 15 million dollars in economic activity. But when you look at the size of the Vancouver economy relative even the BC economy, um, th- this is a very small drop in the bucket. And, and given the amount of, uh, uh, damage that's been done by the virus over the last three months, this is not going to change the fortunes of any city, uh, no matter how big or how small. Yeah, we should let Vancouver fans know that the lines are wide open here at CKNW at 604-280-9898. If you have any thoughts on being the host or hub city or not, or who's going to get it, uh, if Vegas is is one favorite, and following your line of thinking, Moshe, that the cross-border business of quarantining and all the rest of it that Canada will not budge on, at least has no indication has been given so far that they would, uh, and that includes BC here. Uh, so then it seems logical that they would go for an American city uh, to offset the Western Vegas. What's the most likely candidate in the East, in the States, to be that hub city? Yeah, that's that's a that's a rough one because it's not the natural one. You know, if you look at the, the NBA that's looking to restart, they have a clear eye on Orlando as their eastern hub. Right. Uh, because of their connections to ESDN and, and Disneyland out there. And so it kind of satisfies a lot of those ticks 
um, that you'd have with Vegas in the West. But uh, hockey doesn't have some presence in uh, Orlando. And so, you know, the, the natural sort of uh, hub cities there um, are going to either be in states where um, they are not in line with the president's Twitter account and the view of uh, uh, the virus, uh, or they're not a, a large enough base where you can put 10 teams. So I, I'm actually um, a, a little more kind of spreading my uh, betting around on the East than I am on the West. I'm, I'm pretty solid on, on Vegas. Oh, okay. Uh, but Carolina w- would be, North Carolina would be a possibility because, of course, the president doesn't like them enough to have moved his convention away because they weren't going to budge on distancing and other public health realities, which suggests at least there is a regime in place there, Moshe, that would uh, uh, deal with the, the, the public health realities of hosting a major sports event. It could, and, and they could be gearing up for that. Um, you know, the, the big strike against Carolina, of course, is that uh, usually into the late summer and early fall, it's, it's hurricane season. Yeah, and that's that, true. That is yeah. A little matter that means what it is. And, and so the last thing that you want is uh, a hurricane come blowing through uh, or multiple hurricanes coming up the coast there and now putting in jeopardy uh, a bunch of people that are, are really trapped uh, and, and um, voluntarily so, right? There was no reason that they had to be there. So, you know, that's not something that the NHL ever has to contend with because the season is never during hurricane season. Sure. So, um, that that type of weather phenomenon is is exactly the the reverse end of you know you wouldn't want to put it in a an avalanche zone or something like that. Um, the likelihood is small, but again they're they're dealing with uh, very small likelihoods. Um, creating big damage, and, and that's exactly kind of the virus situation, too. Yeah, the ownership of the Boston Bruins is said to have enormous influence on Mr. Bettman and the decisions of the governors of the NHL. Very powerful outfit, the Boston ownership group. Would the, the Bruins franchise uh, be a Boston be a possibility? It, it's, it's not a bad possibility, then, because, you know, they, they do have uh, a, a good infrastructure there in a lot of professional sports in the area. So they're one of those few cities in the U.S. that has four professional sports teams yep. in the four professional sports. So it, it, it's not a bad place for them to be. Um, uh, of course, uh, the catch on Boston, of course, is that their arena is just as old as Montreal's. Yeah. The reason that Montreal was discounted was because it's an old arena by relative standards. Boston is also an old arena. Um, and uh, the infrastructure connecting the, the hub... Uh, to that that arena is not as strong as uh, Edmonton's would have been, for example. Sure. So, you know, they have some strikes against them, too, and that's why I'm saying it's kind of an even-money sort of bet as to which one's the East. Yeah, it is, certainly. Let's, uh, let's take some calls here as we go forward. Dave, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Are you hopeful that Vancouver is, despite the odds that our guest is putting in front of us, still could uh, rise to the occasion and be that hub city? I really hope we do not get it. Okay, why? It's- um, I just don't believe that uh, the economic boost is worth the risk at all. Uh-huh. I'm diehard Canuck fan, diehard hockey fan, but something bad is going to happen. Do we really want to tarnish Vancouver with that negativity? I think we've done so well because of Bonnie and the other people working COVID in BC. I think we're going to come out of it not too bad compared to others. 
and that we don't need to bring a negative in. And for the small positive, I don't think it's worth the major negatives. Interesting stuff, Dave. Thanks very much for your call. I appreciate that. Are you hearing similar reactions? You're in Edmonton, Moshe. Do, are, are people, and I know there are a lot of Oilers fans who, of course, would love nothing more than to be that hub city. But as Dave says so clearly, uh, uh, you know, in Canada, we're doing pretty well. Uh, with this COVID management and flattening the curve and all of that stuff. And this really could throw a spanner into the works. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know that if there's, if there is an outbreak, if God forbid something happens to one of the players or, or more likely it's one of the coaches and the training staff sure. are, are, are older. Um, I, I don't know that that's necessarily going to be held against the city um, as maybe just the league for even proceeding in the face of, you know, it's kind of playing the result that if something does happen, then I think people are going to turn around and say, well, then why'd you do it? Mm -hmm. Um, So I I don't know that the city's going to be held responsible for it. Um, I see a lot of down, uh, a a lot of um, uh, very little downside risk to any city that hosts this. They're they're going to get a lot of the economic benefits, and I don't think they're going to get a lot of the blowback for opening their doors and uh, be willing to take on that risk. Okay, but uh, it's certainly not surprising to you that some citizens are still quite concerned about uh, the the state of public health and really unwilling to rock the boat. Oh, I I mean, I I think all of us, even sports fans, I'm a huge sports fan too, and I'm very much looking to the the Flames being in the playoffs. Um, You know, I, I, I think that we have to kind of look deep inside ourselves. And from a selfish standpoint, of course, we want sports to continue and we want that that uh, void that's been in our life for three months. But, uh, you know, what's the message that that's sending, not just with the virus, but with all of the protests that are, are you know, crossing the globe right now, um, Black Lives Matter and stuff like that. Um, is this really the time that you start putting on sports and taking away those headlines from the, the much, much bigger issues of the day? Sports always serves as a distraction for us. But uh, in this in this particular time, is that the distraction that we want, and is it appropriate when you know we're asking athletes to really put their lives on the line? Oh uh, well, well, well put. Uh, we're going to have to wait a week for the headline, but we will have one seven days from now, Moshe, and we'll perhaps have another conversation at that time. Thank you very much for this one today. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure, anytime. Mo- Welcome back at Sterling Fox in for Jill on this soggy Monday afternoon. Our next guest says Canada needs a wealth tax on the super rich to rein in extreme inequality and contribute to crucial public investments after COVID-19. Our next guest is Alex Hemingway. He's an economist and public finance policy analyst analyst rather at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives and joins us from Vancouver. Mr. Hemingway, Alex, good day. Good day. Thanks for having me, Sterling. It's good to have you on, Alex. So the uh, wealth tax on the super rich would be at what percent and what category or what income level uh, creates or would qualify a family, I'm assuming, uh, to be uh, considered super rich? Well, there there are different versions of this policy out there. Uh, Here in Canada, the federal New Democrats uh, proposed a version during the last election that would kick in on uh, household wealth over $20 million, and it it would be taxed at a 1% rate. Uh, Down in the U.S., you've seen a lot of discussion of this issue uh, from uh, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders uh, during the Democratic primaries. Right. And there there you're seeing more aggressive uh, wealth taxes, again, though, kicking in at this uh, very high levels, in in those cases, $50 million. Uh, So you're really just capturing uh, the, the wealthiest few uh, but they're looking at even higher percentages uh, uh, for those who have wealth above a billion dollars, getting into two or three percent 
uh, annual wealth tax on on those folks. Okay, but back to the original premise, uh, we're looking at, you say, 1% annual tax on uh, the income being over $20 million. What would that net the government of Canada? Well, so the Parliamentary Budget Office looked at this uh, uh, last uh, summer, and the estimate that they put forward is uh, uh, once fully implemented by 2028, it would be bringing in about $10 billion per year, uh, less earlier on, about $6 billion in the first fiscal year. So substantial, uh, 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 very substantial uh, money we're talking about here. Okay, now in the piece that is in today's Vancouver province, uh, you go into some detail, uh, quoting research uh, from the uh, Centre for Policy Alternatives. Talk to us a little bit about some of the findings that you've identified in the paper today in terms of uh, number of families, uh, their uh, control or leverage over the nation's wealth, those sorts of things that just put it on the radio airwaves. I don't want to read it. Alex, it's your piece. (laughs) Well, first of all, uh, you you know, uh, just as a piece of context, I think uh, people are generally aware, and it's been a a matter of discussion increasingly in, in recent years, how far inequality has spun out of control in Canada. So uh, when you look at it, uh, the 87 wealthiest uh, billionaire families in Canada uh, actually own as much wealth as the bottom 12 million Canadians. So it is extreme. I think people know that. Mm. Uh, and what's striking is, you know, we've seen some polling on this issue of, uh, of the wealth tax uh, recently and over the past couple of years, uh, and it's increasingly becoming common sense. So we see 75% support uh, among Canadians for a wealth tax. And that's a cross-partisan thing, which is very striking. So 69% support uh, amongst uh, conservative voters as well. Uh, So, uh, you know, uh, something's changing out there. And and this is consistent with what we see in other countries in the U.S. uh, and in Europe in terms of the polling on these issues. So, you know, what we brought together in this uh, article is looking at the state of that wealth inequality that I mentioned, uh, the possibility for uh, the revenue that could be raised by this type of wealth tax, and also getting into some of the concerns that may pop up about whether uh, uh, the super rich will actually uh, work their way around a tax like this. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, 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 sure, yeah. We'll, get, we'll get to that in a minute, because, of course, they're rich enough to employ platoons of tax lawyers, uh, and, and they do. Uh, but here's a, a quote also uh, attributed to you in the paper today that I like. Like a little clarification on Alex, a growing body of research shows that extreme inequality puts a drag on economic growth and worsens health and social outcomes across society. Explain that one, please. Yeah, that's important. I'm glad you bring those up. So there's two different things there. Uh, in terms of the effect of this extreme inequality on economic growth, we've seen uh, relatively uh, conservative institutions like the International Monetary Fund, like the OECD, publishing research over the past few years showing that when inequality reaches uh, the levels that we're seeing in, in countries like the U.S. and uh, Canada, we're not quite as uh, far along, but we're still in an extreme situation. Uh, that is actually uh, uh, putting a drag on economic growth. It's lowering that uh, annual uh, GDP growth that we see uh, in the country and making us all poorer. Uh, the other body of uh, research... How does that the, happen, though? Yeah. Oh, sorry to interrupt, but how does oh, that yeah, happen? No how, do we be, how do we become poorer because the rich get richer? Is, is, is that an automatic axiom? Explain that. Well, no, it's not automatic, and, and it, the, the mechanisms, uh, the, there's is still an open question. Uh, when you look at, uh, for example, the work of uh, uh, the French economist 
Thomas Piketty has uh, looked at this issue, and part of what he points out is that as uh, wealth inequality has grown more extreme globally, uh, what you see is that the returns to owning wealth uh, have begun to outstrip economic growth itself. I see. And, and so part, if you think about it, the incentives that are being set up there are not necessarily incentives that reward hard work or even innovation, but rather reward uh, wealth itself and possessing wealth. So we have uh, uh, wealth begetting more wealth over time, and, and, and that's how you get that concentration uh, self-perpetuating. Uh, okay, but the extreme inequality also, you say, worsens health and social outcomes across society. How could that be if the, if the, the wealthy are indeed paying taxes and the economy is buoyant because they're so darn wealthy? Uh, would that not automatically indicate more uh, financial resources available for the improvement of the health system? You, you would hope so. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we see, uh, well, there's a couple of aspects there. So to, to, to address the main issue, uh, this is coming from a body of research from uh, uh, health professionals, epidemiologists who have looked across countries, looked at levels of inequality, and looked at their correlations with health outcomes uh, and, and social outcomes such as uh, uh, trust in society, health outcomes uh, such as uh, how long folks are living, mm-hmm. uh, and, and so on. And again, we're, we see a, a strong relationship between higher inequality uh, and uh, um, more negative health and social outcomes. Now, the, the, as you say, uh, as we get richer, uh, in theory, uh, we should be able to dedicate more of those resources uh, uh, to making people's lives better, uh, to investing in our healthcare system. That's not always uh, uh, happening, and indeed. Uh, you know, one, one of the phenomenon at, at work here is that the very wealthy are able to, uh, in many cases, avoid uh, paying taxes as at as high a level as uh, they might have under the rules in place, uh, you know, just a few decades ago. Yeah, we'll talk about tax avoidance on the other side of the break. But just before we go, we go into the break, um, you, you talk about a wealth tax being a policy whose time has come and you point to other uh, existing or similar arrangements elsewhere on the planet. Where would those locations be? Well, there, there are the proposals for these types of wealth taxes on the super-rich are popping up, as I mentioned a little earlier, in the U.S., uh, in Spain. There's a proposal at, at the EU-wide level from economists uh, for a, a temporary 10-year wealth tax to pay for some of the COVID-19 costs. Mm-hmm. And there are existing wealth taxes uh, in Europe. Some have been more successful for others, and it, a lot of that boils down to the specific uh, design of those taxes, which we could uh, get into if you like. Okay. Our next guest, or our current guest, says wealth taxes enjoy strong public support at levels rarely seen on any public policy issue. The latest poll in Canada shows 75% public support for wealth taxes, and that includes 69% support among Conservative Party voters. This according to our guest, Alex Hemingway, from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives in Vancouver. Uh, and, and we've got so the phone lines open as well, so let's check in. Terry, are you one of those uh, 69 percenters in support of this uh, idea of a wealth tax? Well, I vote NDP and I live in New Westminster, so that's saying it all probably. But um, <laughs> <laughs> um, The problem with the wealth tax is that the wealthy people are capable of moving their assets to other countries. Uh, they'll hire lawyers and accountants to find ways of getting them out of paying the, off- the, the wealth tax. Uh, they'll give the charities somehow and get like a charity um, deferral so, I mean, I know that you guys mean well, the fellow there, but uh, the, the practical issue is that 
somehow wealthy people get away with things that middle class and poor people don't get away with. So I don't mean to be cynical, but I'm 64, you know, and I am cynical. So there you go. And I live in New Westminster, too, Terry. And I was about to make the same point with Alex. And, and we were we actually said we would talk about tax evasion, Alex, because Terry's right. I mean, these wealthy people do have squadrons, to use another military word, of tax lawyers working for them. They can pick up their money and move it anywhere on the planet with relative ease. So how do you enforce the tax or, or do you just sort of watch them head out the door? <laughs> No, that's a really important issue, and I think that's what immediately comes to mind for folks when when this comes up. Uh, When you look at the research on this, and and I talk about this in the article, some of the foremost uh, experts on uh, tax havens, uh, Emmanuel Saez and Gabriel Zuckman, who are down at the University of California, have looked at this in some detail. So let's think about how this works in in the case of a wealth tax. So first thing first, uh, a wealth tax in Canada would apply to the worldwide assets of Canadian citizens and residents. So when it comes to legally moving your money abroad, that doesn't help you. Uh, And and there are models for this in the U.S., for example, uh, uh, U.S. citizens have to file taxes based on their worldwide income uh, so that we we know how to set up a a tax in this particular way. Now, the bigger issue is, uh, will they engage in illegal tax evasion? Yeah. You know, that's much more serious. That's a crime. Uh, And when we look at cracking down on that uh, type of behavior, it is technically uh, feasible to do that. It's what's really missing, and this is what uh, the economists I mentioned, Saez and Zuckman, emphasize, uh, what's missing is political will to do those crackdowns. And so there's a couple of angles on this. Uh, The Parliamentary Budget Office here in Canada uh, looked, for example, during this past election at a, a number of proposals for increasing resources to the Canada Revenue Agency uh, to crack down on tax avoidance and evasion. And uh, they find, and this is consistent with the other research that's out there, that when you put more resources into that crackdown, you get uh, uh, much more money back than you put in. So uh, it, it's, it's actually very puzzling that we don't do more of this than we currently are because we know that it pays off. So it, it is a concern. Uh, the missing element is political will. I think if we can get to the point where we're actually looking at implementing a wealth tax in Canada, then we're in a situation where there's political will to uh, get more serious about that uh, enforcement crackdown as well. Okay. Back to the phones, too. Laurie, are you in support of all of this? What do you think about this wealth tax business? Um, no, I'm not because it is only the tip of the iceberg. Anything that socialists implement, that's only just the foot in the door. They just start with that. Okay, then the next thing you know is the next layer down. Oh, it's all these people in this bracket. They're the next ones. Now we've got to start taxing. It's just the sort of thing that um, is like a domino effect, just like we started income tax during the war. Right. Well, you know how far that's gone. Yeah, right. It was a temporary so, yeah, measure. And then if they see the pot filling up here, or uh, like I see see anything that's a monopoly in that regard where they can control it. I mean, um, no, I am not in favor of that because that is socialism and I don't like it. One All right. bit. Well, a lot of people, of course, uh, point to Bernie Sanders and you've used him as an example in the United States for his uh, American version of this, along with Elizabeth Warren, Alex. Uh, the, the point being, that I think that if I may uh, uh, interpret some of what Laurie's mm-hmm. <laughs> very adamant statement was, in fact, uh, there was a book written a couple of years ago called called Tax Me. I'm Canadian. We Canadians know we're already among the most taxed people on earth, and we do have a threshold. 
Well, uh, a couple of things. Of course, uh, I think it's it's right to recognize that households in Canada uh, uh, feel under pressure, whether it's from the cost of living or uh, whether it be their tax bill. It is certainly not the case that uh, we're one of the highest taxed in, in the world. We're higher taxed than the U.S., uh, uh, but not compared to many other countries. That's a little bit all, all to the side here, because what we're focused on is uh, that extreme inequality and uh, taxing those at the very, very top. And, you know, everyone's entitled to their opinion, and certainly Lori is as well. But this is increasingly becoming the common sense. We talked about that those polling numbers right. earlier. If you look at the breakdown of that polling in BC, the support for this type of policy is 80%. And I think it's common sense uh, because of that extreme inequality and increasingly, and, and this in part uh, uh, during this COVID crisis, it's shone a light on, on the fact that you know no individual or corporation becomes wealthy without a huge collective effort, whether that's from their own workers or through the public investments in social and physical infrastructure that make this country work. Uh, so, you know, no one becomes wealthy on their own. And I think it's uh, most folks find it eminently reasonable that uh, we should share a little bit more in that wealth to be able to make the kinds of important uh, investments we need, whether it's in health or seniors care or addressing the climate crisis or so many other things. Okay, let's talk to one more taxpayer. Jason, if you can make it quick, I've got about a minute. What do you think? I'll do, I'll do it quick. This is so socialist. It's crazy. Um, you know, I, I've gone through years where I've made nothing. I'm in construction. I own my own business. I've had everything that I've got I earned. Last year was a good year. I made 200 plus. I guess I'm the wealthy. He's coming for my money. Um, you know, instead of doing this, why don't they start cutting regulation and getting rid of some fat and, and change us over to a, to a consumption tax? I'm the guy who's going and eating out. I'm tipping the server. I'm, I'm, my wealth is, is getting spread around like crazy. Gotcha, Jason. The point being here, though, just to, to bring it back to, to where Alex started, this is a tax that would be applicable to those uh, families and uh, individuals with incomes in excess of $20 million. Correct, Alex? Uh, with the wealth over $20 million, exactly. And it only applies to the, the, the next dollar over uh, $20 million, so it doesn't even apply to the first $20 million. So I think, you know, from a fairness perspective, it's, it's, it's hard to argue with for most folks. Very quickly, the Cayman Islands and other world-famous tax havens for wealthy people from everywhere uh, would be a bit of a tough nut to crack. How would that happen? Yeah, so, and, and the economists I mentioned earlier, Seiz and Zuckman, uh, get into some detail on this. I talk about it a bit in the article. Uh, there are a few steps that need to be taken. First, you need more uh, resources in the enforcement system uh, and focus those resources on this tax avoidance and evasion by the very rich. Uh, you need to be looking at the financial services industry itself that helps uh, enable this. Rich folks can't do this on their own. They need that industry, so enforcement needs to uh, look at those industries in particular. And uh, one thing you can do, just to put a practical note on it, is put stronger uh, data sharing and transparency requirements on any banks, foreign or domestic, that do business uh, with Canada. And we're starting to see some steps in that direction. Sterling Fox in for Jill Bennett on this Monday afternoon. It is 2.06. Men who regularly used a free web resource made significantly more health changes than men who did not. This from a new study from Intentions Consulting and UBC. And here to talk about this survey and what men can do to click their way to better health from Intentions Consulting, managing partner Nick Black joins us. Hello, Nick. 
Oh, it's Jerry Nichols. We're now, and we're going to talk to Nick in a few minutes. Well, that's okay, because Aaron O'Toole is in the news. Jerry Nichols knows all about Aaron O'Toole. Mr. O'Toole is uh, one of the leadership candidates for the Conservative Party of Canada, the frontrunner, along with Peter McKay. And there's a story in the paper today about how Mr. O'Toole, who has gone to great lengths in his career as a politician to uh, promote Canada, Canadian values, and all this, has used in the course of his fundraising for his leadership campaign an American firm. Jerry Nichols is a Canadian consultant who has worked for both Canadian and American clients and political campaigns on both sides of the border and gets the big picture. Jerry, welcome back. Good to talk to you. Sorry about the mix up there. No, it's okay, Sterling. I, I know a lot more about Aaron O'Toole than I do about health websites. So <laughs> that's, well, that's I'm, good. I'm glad we straightened that one out in a big hurry. Uh, but let's yeah, I was kind uh, of panicking there for a minute. Yeah, I can't right. remember what I knew about these websites. Exactly. No, no. I, I want to talk about the CERB because there's going to be an extension of that. But first and foremost, this is this is news. It was over the weekend. Uh, Mr. O'Toole, a leadership candidate, uh, is has been found. And it turns out his campaign hastens to uh, inform us that this was in the big picture, a relatively small contract awarded to an American call center to attempt to, on Mr. O'Toole's behalf, I gather, either raise members for the party, Jerry, or just membership funds for his leadership campaign. Yeah, I think it was, I think it, my understanding is these were like fundraisers um, who call up people. So, yeah. Not unusual. Yeah. Um, it's also not unusual for, for Canadian campaigns to use American resources or to hire Americans to work in campaigns. So I'm not sure why this is, why this is kind of a, such a news story. Um, it reminds me when I worked in, I was working on a campaign in New Hampshire about 10 years ago uh, for guys running for the U.S. Senate. And all of a sudden my name got in the news because they were saying, why did this, this guy's name is Bill Binney, why is Bill Binney hiring a Canadian to work in his campaign staff? Uh-huh. I thought he was for America. Right, and I'll tell you, Sterling. There's no more uncomfortable feeling than being the point of discussion in a staff meeting. Um, so we had to we had to issue a release, and usually saying, you know, we hired Jerry because he's a good communicator, he's sure. an excellent writer, and we need him on our campaign. I'm proud to have him on our campaign. So it became a news story because you were you. It wasn't part of the regular drill, and that's well, presumably it, it was the uh, it was kind of the the the. the Flip side of the coin of this: instead of hiring an American, they were hiring a Canadian. Exactly. So, so uh, yeah, but that it, was that became a news story, a little bit of a controversy. So uh, this always happens. I think this is a function of the media. What they don't realize is that campaigns hire people from other countries all the time to work in campaigns, and the idea is you hire the people who are the best. And if they happen to come from another country, well, that's you want to hire the best people. When I was working for a group called the National Citizens Coalition, we hired American pollsters all the time. Right. Because we thought they were good and they knew how to do their job, and their their prices are reasonable. I suppose so though, I don't Jerry. think it's all that unusual in politics for for people to hire people uh, outside of the country. But I get why the media. Um, finds this interesting. Well, it's an optics thing, isn't it? Here's a guy running for the leadership of a national Canadian uh, major party uh, and uh, is is using uh, American resources, foreign resources, in order to secure that position as a leader of a Canadian party. Uh, it's it's great grist for the media mill. Well, There's I, no I question. I think what, what appeals to a lot of people in the media and sometimes to the to the um, other people, uh, political opponents, is that oh, I thought you were for our country. Uh, you're for another country. 
Uh, so it's a little bit of protectionism, and this is which is kind of unusual because we're supposed to be living in an age of globalism, mm-hmm. right, and free trade and free ideas and, and free flow of, of of people from country to country, and yet you know that's that's still that's still part of the that's still part of the game. Very quickly, so if you're if you're running a campaign, you have you have to keep that in mind. And that, well, our strategy was to say, yeah, not to not to. In my case, our strategy was not not to get all defensive about it, but say hey, we did this because this is the best person. And uh, we're, we're proud of what we did. That's right. And that usually makes the story go away. Sure. Own it and move on, right? Right. Uh, who's doing better, McKay or O'Toole right now? The other two players, Lewis and Sloan, are really bit players uh, considering, although at the convention, second and third choices may, may come into play. But who's, uh, who's ahead of the pack right now? Well, my only sense about it is, I, I, is that McKay is probably still ahead. But I think the situation and the circumstances play better for Aaron O'Toole. Ever since the the COVID nineteen thing kind of interrupted the whole the whole campaign, the whole leadership race, because now we're talking about different issues, which I think play better to O'Toole's brand. Uh, you know, talking about we now need. I think before COVID, the debate was who's the best guy to beat Trudeau, who who's who's the least offensive conservative leader right, right, that we right. could have, right? Who who who's the person that would scare people the least? And that was usually Peter McKay. Because he's a nice guy, and that's kind of his brand. I'm a nice guy. Right. Now the the question is, who's strong? Who can be the strongest leader to lead Canada? Well, all these horrible things which are happening all over the world, isn't it? Don't we need a strong leader? Don't we need a guy maybe with a military background? Mm, okay. And I think that plays better to Aaron O'Toole. So I think he has an opportunity here to kind of make some gains and to perhaps close the lead on McKay a little bit. Whether there's enough time for him to actually overtake McKay, I don't know. Interesting stuff. Just a minute left for this other topic, the extension of the CERB. Uh, Mr. Trudeau announcing an extension. No details until, I assume, the vote on Wednesday. He'll get it passed because of support from the NDP. This was an integral part part of getting their support. Uh, Do you see this being an indefinite extension or a couple more months? It's hard to say. I think I think a lot of it will depend on what's happening with the economy and what's happening with the whole virus thing. Uh, sooner or later, he's got to start working on ending the lockdown and getting you know the, the economy going again. Mm-hmm. But I think in the meantime, it's certainly good politics for 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 Justin Trudeau to keep saying to say, "Look, we're going to keep extending it because that'll put people's minds at ease. Um, it'll 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 make him look like he's looking after people and he cares about people." Which is kind of odd because just a couple of weeks ago he was talking about you know I'm going to put people in jail who uh, yeah. who are, fry, you know, <laughs> who are so gaming the system going back and forth on this yeah um, so but I think it's good politics for him to kind of extend it and of course that was something that'll make the NDP happy um, I guess the question is how can Canada afford this how long can we afford this what's the fiscal situation that I don't know. Um, but certainly for in terms of politics, it's, it's probably a good move for Justin Trudeau to keep pushing this. Interesting stuff. Thanks for this, Jerry. Great to have you back on the show. Now you can go back to your radio and find out about that website in men's health, okay? <laughs> yes, I need it. <laughs> Me too. We'll talk again. Thank you. Sterling Fox in for Jill Bennett on this Monday afternoon. It is 2.06. Men who regularly used a free web resource made significantly more health changes than men who did not. This from a new study from Intentions Consulting and UBC. And here to talk about this survey and what men can do to click their way to better health from Intentions Consulting, managing partner Nick Black joins us. Hello, Nick. 
Oh, it's Jerry Nichols. We're now, and we're going to talk to Nick in a few minutes. Well, that's okay, because Aaron O'Toole is in the news. Jerry Nichols knows all about Aaron O'Toole. Mr. O'Toole is uh, one of the leadership candidates for the Conservative Party of Canada, the frontrunner, along with Peter McKay. And there's a story in the paper today about how Mr. O'Toole, who has gone to great lengths in his career as a politician to uh, promote Canada, Canadian values and all this, has used in the course of his fundraising for his leadership campaign, an American. American firm. Jerry Nichols is a Canadian consultant who has worked for both Canadian and American clients and political campaigns on both sides of the border and gets the big picture. Jerry, welcome back. Good to talk to you. Sorry about the mix up there. No, it's okay, Sterling. I, I know a lot more about Aaron O'Toole than I do about health websites. So <laughs> that's, well, that's I, good. I'm glad we straightened that one out in a big hurry. Uh, but let's yeah, I was kind of panicking there for a minute. Yeah, I right. remember what I knew about these websites. Exactly. No, no. I, I want to talk about the CERB because there's going to be an extension of that. But first and foremost, this is this is news. It was over the weekend. Uh, Mr. O'Toole, a leadership candidate, uh, is has been found. And it, it turns out his campaign hastens to uh, inform us that there was in the big picture, a relatively small contract awarded to an American call center to attempt to, on Mr. O'Toole's behalf, I gather, either raise members for the party, Jerry, or just membership funds for his leadership campaign. Yeah, I think it was, I think it, my understanding is these were like fundraisers um, who call up people. So, yeah. Not unusual. Yeah. Um, it's also not unusual for, for Canadian campaigns to use American resources or to hire Americans to work in campaigns. So I'm not sure why this is, why this is kind of a, such a news story. Um, it reminds me when I worked in, I was working on a campaign in New Hampshire about 10 years ago uh, for guys running for the U.S. Senate. And all of a sudden my name got in the news because they were saying, why did this, this guy's name is Bill Binney. Why is Bill Binney hiring a Canadian to work in his campaign staff? Uh-huh. I thought he was for America. Right. And I'll tell you, Sterling, there's no more uncomfortable feeling than being the point of discussion in a staff meeting. Um, so we had to we had to issue a release and usually saying, you know, we hired Jerry because he's a good communicator. He's sure. an excellent writer and we need him on our campaign. I'm proud to have him on our campaign. So it became a news story because you were you it wasn't a part of the regular drill. And that's well, presumably it, it was the uh, it was kind of the the the. the flip side of the coin of this instead of hiring an american they were hiring a canadian exactly so, so uh, yeah, but that it, was that became a news story a little bit of a controversy so uh, this always happens i think this is a function of the media what they don't realize is that campaigns hire people from other countries all the time to work in campaigns and the idea is you hire the people who are the best and if they happen to come from another country well that's you want to hire the best people when i was working for a group called the national citizens coalition we hired american pollsters all the time right because we thought they were good and they knew how to do their job, and their their prices are reasonable. I suppose so though, I don't Jerry, think it's all that unusual in politics for for people to hire people uh, outside of the country. But I get why the media. Um, finds this interesting. Well, it's an optics thing, isn't it? Here's a guy running for the leadership of a national Canadian uh, major party uh, and uh, is is using uh, American resources, foreign resources, in order to secure that position as a leader of a Canadian party. Uh, it's it's great grist for the media mill. Well, I, There's no I, I question. Think what, what appeals to a lot of people in the media and sometimes to the to the um, other people, uh, political opponents, is that oh, I thought you were for our country. Uh, you're for another country. 
Uh, so it's a little bit of protectionism, and this is which is kind of unusual because we're supposed to be living in an age of globalism, mm-hmm. right, and free trade and free ideas and, and free flow of, of of people from country to country, and yet you know that's that's still that's still part of the that's still part of the game. Very quickly, so if you're if you're running a campaign, you have, you have to keep that in mind. And that, our strategy was to say, yeah, not to not to. In my case, our strategy was not not to get all defensive about it, but say hey, we did this because this is the best person. And uh, we're, we're proud of what we did. That's right. And that usually makes the story go away. Sure. Own it and move on, right? Right. Uh, who's doing better, McKay or O'Toole right now? The other two players, Lewis and Sloan, are really bit players uh, considering, although at the convention, second and third choices may, may come into play. But who's, uh, who's ahead of the pack right now? Well, my only sense about it is, I, I, is that McKay is probably still ahead. But I think the situation and the circumstances play better for Aaron O'Toole. Ever since the the COVID nineteen thing kind of interrupted the whole the whole campaign, the whole leadership race, because now we're talking about different issues, which I think play better to O'Toole's brand. Uh, you know, talking about we now need. I think before COVID, the debate was who's the best guy to beat Trudeau, who who's who's the least offensive conservative leader right, right, that we right. could have, right? Who who who's the person that would scare people the least? And that was usually Peter McKay. Because he's a nice guy, and that's kind of his brand. I'm a nice guy. Right. Now the the question is, who's strong? Who can be the strongest leader to lead Canada? Well, all these horrible things which are happening all over the world, isn't it? Don't we need a strong leader? Don't we need a guy maybe with a military background? Mm, okay. And I think that plays better to Aaron O'Toole. So I think he has an opportunity here to kind of make some gains and to perhaps close the lead on McKay a little bit. Whether there's enough time for him to actually overtake McKay, I don't know. Interesting stuff. Just a minute left for this other topic, the extension of the CERB. Uh, Mr. Trudeau announcing an extension. No details until, I assume, the vote on Wednesday. He'll get it passed because of support from the NDP. This was an integral part part of getting their support. Uh, Do you see this being an indefinite extension or a couple more months? It's hard to say. I think I think a lot of it will depend on what's happening with the economy and what's happening with the whole virus thing. Uh, sooner or later, he's got to start working on ending the lockdown and getting you know the, the economy going again. Mm-hmm. But I think in the meantime, it's certainly good politics for 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 Justin Trudeau to keep saying to say, look, we're going to keep extending it because that'll put people's minds at ease. Um, it'll 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 make him look like he's looking after people and he cares about people. Which is kind of odd because just a couple of weeks ago he was talking about you know I'm going to put people in jail who uh, yeah. fry, you know who are so gaming he's the system going back and forth on this yeah um, so but I think it's good politics for him to kind of extend it and of course that was something that'll make the NDP happy um, I guess the question is how can Canada afford this how long can we afford this what's the fiscal situation that I don't know. Um, but certainly for in terms of politics, it's, it's probably a good move for Justin Trudeau to keep pushing this. Interesting stuff. Thanks for this, Jerry. Great to have you back on the show. Now you can go back to your radio and find out about that website in men's health, okay? <laughs> yes, I need it. <laughs> Me too. We'll talk again. Thank you.